Welcome to the Hope Revolution messages. You'll be able to find our sermon podcast at hoperevolution.church forward slash sermon, as well as all other podcast players. We hope you enjoy this message. It does feel like uh, coming back to family. It's really, really nice to be here with you guys. It's always nice to connect with family. How does that sound? And there are some certain communities that I feel very close to, and you are definitely one of those families and communities that I feel close to. So let me share a couple of things with you this morning. Actually, the service was so good, the music and everything, I thought, you know, I'm ready to go. This is, I've been filled with the Spirit, I'm in great company. I'm okay to end it here, you know. Well, let me ask you a question. Why do we come to church? Why are you here? Worship, okay. Anything else? Communal fellowship, yeah. And for different people, it will be different things. Yeah, okay. Here is word, I like that. And I was just talking to my wife about this the other day, and she said she remembers a sermon that she heard maybe 10 years ago, and it really changed her view of, of worship because she thought to be a Christian... You have to do certain things. You've got to pray a certain amount of times. You've got to Bible study a certain amount of times. You've got to go to church. And then when she heard this sermon, this um, maybe he was a psychologist. I'm not sure what his background was. But he talked about how different people worship God in different ways. And some people connect with God through nature. And they just, I'm one of those people. I really connect with God. I sometimes go alone down to the prom. I'll take my tent. And I'll leave all my electronics behind. I'll just take my Bible. And two or three days of that, and my goodness, what a change. And that really helps me. And other people are really uplifted in music. Others in Bible study. You know, really love the Word of God. That's another one that I connect with. And I can't remember them all, but there were seven ways that different, we all connect to God in different ways. You know, seven different, I wish I could remember them all. Can you remember some of them? I think it was music, worship, nature, uh, community, word, yep. can't remember. But the great thing is that we are just so diverse and we all find God in different ways. And the great thing about that is that when we come together, we all bring that little bit of different aspect of God's character and thereby we all are edified, you know. That's what I love about that. So why do we come to church? And that was the question. While I was connecting with those on the streets, because I do a bit of street work, I work with some homeless people, drug addicts, uh, prostitutes and so on, I inadvertently connected with someone who wasn't on the streets but sort of related to this, to this demographic. She was a brothel owner uh, about my age. And you could tell she's a brothel owner. You know, brothel owners dress a certain way. I'm not going to go into the descriptions, but you know what I mean, all right? The big nails, the, you know, the colors, the, the jewelry, you know, the, you know what I mean. Yeah, and the confidence as well that came with it. I don't know how it happened, but we were, I was at a cafe and I used to go to this cafe on a regular basis and I used to read and study during, during uh, the same time every day for about 45 minutes or so. And so she used to see me there on a regular basis, and we connected. So over the next several years, 
I became very good friends with this brothel owner. And we became really good friends, like connecting. We, we shared stories. She'd shared her life. She ended up, uh, her story was that she belonged to a Hindu family. She ended up on the streets as a young girl because she was a very wild child. And maybe there was abuse at home. I can't remember that part. But she had to leave home. So she was on the streets by the age of 14, 15. And, of course, the only thing she could do to make money is that kind of work. And eventually, she ended up becoming very good at, obviously, she was a very intelligent person, a manager, ended up a brothel owner in the end. Um, so that was an, a really interesting journey. One thing I'll share with you is, this is before she knew I was a Christian. She goes, when's your birthday? And I told her the birthday. Ah, oh, I'll give you a voucher, she said. <laughs> and that's when she found out I was a Christian. <laughs> I said, well... I said, I'm married, I'm happily married, I'm not going to, you know. She goes, oh, but all men do that. I go, well, I don't. And then she found out what I, what I believe. And she goes, wow, you're the only Christian I know. I said, oh, I bet you know a few Christians, don't worry. <laughs> that was a really interesting experience. My relationship with her developed. I was able to talk to her about Christ, my journey, what he has done for me. And little by little, you could see that there was a difference over time, whether it was me or whether it was also other people that connected with her. God was sending her lots of different people. Seeds were planted in her heart. Eventually, she gave up that work. She tried to run a cafe, but then COVID hit, and then she died. She passed away. She had some infection um, while COVID hit, and uh, she died quite young, 55 or something like that at the time. Um, will I see her again? I don't know. But I can tell you that there was a distinct change in her journey and in my relationship with her. And she would open up to me. And she said to me, I remember the last few things, last few times we met, she said to me, John, I'd really love you to meet my parents. And she wasn't close to her parents. She said, I'd love you to connect with them and just share some of the things that you've told me. And I'm still trying to make that connection to the parents. I still have a way in there, but it's not easy because they don't know me, you know. So that's something to pray for. Which brings me to a story about a preacher. This is strange connections, but these connections will, will, hopefully you'll make them. One thing about me, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit on the spectrum. Okay, it might not come across to many of you, but some of you who have kids who are Aspies, you probably say, oh, yeah, I can see that in you. So I'm a little bit on the spectrum. So the way I see things in my brain is I see the big picture, and I am trying to break this picture down into small pieces and give them to you, you know, one thing at a time. So the picture may not make sense until the end, all right? There's a story of this pastor. Now, if you know this pastor's name, don't say who he is because I think some of you may have read about him. You may have seen an article or a journal or something, but I'll ask you near the end if you know who this pastor is. All right. It's not Matt. This pastor, young pastor in his 30s, he was working in a little country town, conservative church. So he had a tiny little church, beautiful community. The church respected him because he was one of these pastors, like let's say Matt left for some reason, he went off to the missions and 
you went to Africa with your family. <laughs> and you got a young, and now let's say that Matt was replaced by a young pastor, you know, someone. <laughs> well, I was going to say handsome, but. <laughs> Single. So he's a single young pastor. But these are one of the pastors that everybody loves. You know, there is just sometimes these people that just, they just connect with everyone, including the youth, the young people. And they just love this guy, right? And this church just was so blessed to have this young pastor. And when he preached, I mean, everyone would just, just focus. The stories, the, the depth of it all. Um, he was countercultural in his way of thinking, it really uplifted the marginalized, you know, those who were struck. He really understood people. The youth loved him. What the church uh, didn't know initially, they found out later, is that he really enjoyed going down to the big city, which was a little bit of a ways from where they lived. And he would go there, you know, I don't know, three or four times a week. And he would do a lot of work with the people on the streets, he would help the homeless. He would connect with, you know, the prostitutes. He would connect with the drug addicts. And he just loved being with those, you know, that, that demographic. You could say that he was the hands and feet of Jesus in that sense. Because that's what Jesus did, didn't he? He loved being with that demographic, probably more than any other demographic. He didn't spend all that much time with the, the leaders of the church. But he did spend a lot of time with the down, the trodden. So as he was going and, and connecting with these folk, obviously the church noticed and I think they loved the fact that he was a good example to, especially the youth. I think any church would love a pastor like that. But something interesting happened, and this is why it's related to the story that when I met this brothel owner, um, he, he met a young lady there who was a prostitute and they got talking and he was trying to help her and encourage her, you know, to change her life. And something unexpected happened. They fell in love. And they started up a relationship. They started courting and going out. And of course, this can't be hidden for long. And the church found out. Now I can see a lot of you looking at me. John, where are you going with this? How do you feel as a church? Now that your pastor, this is your pastor, because Matt's not here, young guy, how do you feel about his ministry, about what he's doing? Okay, you don't have to answer, it's all right. <laughs> so now he's, he's having this relationship, and they're really getting close, and they're falling in love. And it's evident that this is going to go further. And he senses there's a tension in the church because some of the things that come up from the Bible is, you know, don't be unequally yoked. True? Another one might be, I'm thinking, my goodness, this is not a good example to our young men. You don't want this pastor having this kind of relationship with this lady and she's covered in tattoos, she's got all the piercings, you know, this is, she, she's got that baggage we talked about before this morning when we're having the talk about, um, you know, um, baggage of life within the leadership team. She carries that baggage, right? 
So he knows what he's getting himself into, but the church is, you know, the older folk are looking over their glasses at the pastor. This is not the pastor we thought we were getting. So sensing the tension in the air, he goes to the Bible and he does a couple of sermons and he preaches on the topic of love. And I'm just going to pick out a few verses. You can follow me in your Bibles if you want, or you can just listen. That's fine. 1 John 4, 7, he preaches, and I'm, I'm just using a little bit of holy imagination, okay? I don't know what he preached on, but I'm assuming it'll be something like this. And he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Well, he's showing love. He's showing compassion. He's embracing this person. He's, fall, he's fallen in love with her. She's fallen in love with him. It's a genuine relationship. Is it wrong? The church is not convinced. First Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Another week goes past. First Corinthians 13, 13. And you know this one off by heart. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And guess what happens? The church sort of takes a breath. Okay, we get it. We understand. You love her? All right. The church moves on. They accept her. They embrace her. She becomes his fiancée. She gets baptized. They get married. She becomes part of the church community. They put her in charge of, I don't know, one of the kids' groups or something. But now she's part of the community and they've accepted her. How do you feel now? Do you feel better? <laughs> it's a tough one. All right, it's a tough one. Let's keep going because not, that's not the end of the story. Well, they settle down. And like all great marriages, you know, sometimes the husband has to go off to work. And he, as a pastor, he's very much sought after. And you're very lucky. You've got Matt, but you have Matt full time, correct? Right. So some churches don't. A pastor has to have three or four or five churches, especially if you're in the Philippines or Malaysia. You know, they might see their pastor once a year because they travel through the whole country because there's not enough pastors. So in this part of the country, in this part of the world, he had many different churches. And so sometimes he would be off for a long time, sometimes months at a time. And while he was gone, she's at home, she's a home wife, she's, she's doing the things that a, a typical wife would do in that culture, in that era, I shouldn't say here in Australia, because it's very different here. And one day she was back in the city where she was, you know, where they met, and they don't know whether it was the, the sounds, whether it was the smells, whether it was the people, whether it was the shops, whatever it was. But something happened um, inside her and she was drawn back into the life that she had left. What do we call that when someone falls back into that kind of sin? What's, what's the word for that? Backsliding. So she backslid. And it got even more complicated because she also got pregnant while he was away. 
And when he came back, of course, she was distraught. She was broken. But he, being the kind of person he is, what do you think he did? He had compassion. He loved her. He forgave her, as difficult as that is. Because I think a person like that, a pastor like that, who gets into a relationship with someone with that much baggage, that much brokenness, I think they know what they're getting themselves into. And this is not a license to tell your young men this is okay to go out, you know, to St Kilda and if you can't find someone online, just pick someone, you know. That's not license. You know what I'm talking about? That's not your example. This is a special man. This is a special pastor. So I just wanted to give that because I can see some parents are worried, especially with their kids there. But he's accepted her. He's forgiven her. But the church is struggling with this. The church is really struggling with this. And so he, again, senses the tension and he realizes he needs to preach on something. So he preaches on mercy and forgiveness. And Hebrews 8.12, as an example, and this, this text in Hebrews 12, 8.12, it actually comes from the Old Testament. And it's repeated multiple times in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Micah. So Paul here says, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, he's quoting God, and I will remember their sins no more. Then he goes to Hebrews 10, 17, their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. So when you're forgiven, and when he forgave his wife, he said to her, I will remember your sins no more. I understand your personality. I understand your character. I understand the baggage. I understand your hurt. I understand the broken home you came from. I understand all that, but I love you anyway. I'm going to accept you and love you despite all that. Jeremiah 33.8, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me, says the Lord. So he preaches about these these themes to show if God can forgive a multitude of sins and he can forgive his wife, why can't you as a church forgive? Church had another aha moment. And they embraced her, they accepted her, and life moved on. And they settled down. How does someone forgive someone like that? How do you do that? If your spouse or someone close to you does something like this, how do you deal with something like this? And I'm asking you, how do you, how do you deal with something like that? And is it something that we have to do? Yeah. And God gives provision for that. It's okay. He doesn't expect us to be bullied in a relationship or uh, locked in to abuse, whether it be physical, spiritual, or um, marital abuse in that way. So God gives provision. Yeah, absolutely. So don't worry, there is a way out for that. That's okay. Yeah. I think it also depends on your character and on your relationship. I mean, I've known relationships where the one partner has married another and that other partner has come with a lot of baggage 
whereas maybe they were involved in some criminal activity when they were younger or something like that. So they knew what they were getting. And then when that person showed some of that criminal activity coming out later in life because they felt they needed more money or whatever, the spouse forgave that person because they knew what they were getting themselves into. You know? Yeah, it's a complex... Uh, it's a complex... Um, it's not black and white. It, it's very grey. It's very messy. And again, God does not expect you or would want you to, to stay in a relationship if this goes on and on and on. You know, um, I, I, I agree with you there. I've got a quote here from a, a Taylor Grismore. She says, you can have compassion for someone suffering and still hold them accountable for the harm they cause and to the standard of respecting your boundaries. So you can still have compassion for the mistake your spouses or the people in your life have made, but you don't have to live with that. You don't, like my wife, there's a lot of people that um, have hurt her. She's been betrayed by good people, good friends, family, and she forgives them. She, forg she has no problem forgiving them, but she says, but I don't want to have anything to do with them because every time I'm with them, I feel the hurt come back but she's forgiven them. Is that okay? You can have compassion. You can have forgiveness. But if being in the presence of those people continue to hurt you, you can move on. Quote ends, their pain is not an excuse to inflict pain onto you. You can have boundaries. Um, and I've got here, divorce is a way of pre preserving self-worth, self-respect, and safety from the pain and damage under these particular circumstances. And I think the ideal would be, and God has always an ideal, and we see that throughout the whole scriptures from the Old Testament onwards, that God would rather you weren't divorced, that God would rather you would have good families, that you would stay together. But God also lives in the real. And God says, I have given them a certificate of divorce. Remember that text? Yeah. So God works in the real. He has the ideal, but he lives in the real. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we've got to be careful of that. Because sometimes we read the ideal and we say, you see, God doesn't want divorce. But then when you see the stories, you can see, ah, hang on, God is real. He understands. It's okay. Malachi 2.16 says that God hates divorce because he himself is a divorcee. When you look at the story of Israel and that history, God understands that and he uses that language in many of the old uh, minor prophets. He talks about the language of him being a divorcee. And that's why God hates divorce, because of what it does. I think all of us feel, especially those of us living on this side of the cross, and one day I will share with you a message talking about the, the way things were before the cross and how things changed after the cross. And Christianity changed this world. It changed Everything, morals, ethics, how we look at marriage, how we look at women, how we treat each other as equals. And today we feel that we want commitment when we're in a marriage. And one of the things we do as a society is we give a, a certificate. Uh, what, what, do you, what do we call it? Is it a certificate or is it a, a marriage certificate? Yeah. And that is a kind of commitment in the same way that when God took Israel out of Egypt, 
he also made a kind of certificate, like a contract. Do you know what that contract was called? The Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is actually based on what's called a Sumerian contract. The Sumerians used a similar kind of contract where the, the emperor or the, um, the king or the pharaoh, depending on what part of the world you're in, they would give a, a set of principles to the people and he would say, I'm going to be your king, your pharaoh, uh, but these are the principles that you need to abide as the people. And the Ten Commandments was written in that same vein. It's called a Sumerian um, like a contract, if you like. I'm going to be your God, but if you're going to be my people, these are the principles that you need to live by. And that gives them confidence and also commitment. Today it's very uh, different where um, young people, especially those who don't believe in marriage, says if things are good, we'll stay together. If they're not, eh, we'll just move on. What's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal was. When I got married, um, and I was dating my wife for a very long time, uh, mainly, mainly because I wasn't sure, because you try marrying a female version of Elijah. Right? <laughs> so it took me a long time to muster the courage. Right? But it was funny because we're on our honeymoon, and um, for the first time I'm sleeping next to her, and we're now committed. And uh, I felt so different in this, in this relationship. This was it. In the same, it was very similar to when I was baptized. Oh, I am now committed. This is it. And I don't know what you guys do, but we actually even get a certificate to prove we're baptized, right? <laughs> Just like a marriage certificate. Um, yeah, it felt very different when I got married. Did you, did you, can you go relate to that? Yeah, isn't that interesting? So it's that, we need that commitment. It's really interesting. And so God provides that commitment and he provides that security. And one of the ways he did that is with his covenants. He provided that commitment back in Eden. And then he committed again to Abraham. And then you see him recommitting and creating another covenant with Israel when he took them out of that bondage, out of that mess that they were in for hundreds of years. And he creates that new commitment with them. And of course, the ultimate commitment was when he died on the cross. So he's continually showing his commitment. I love this text here it's in Hosea 14.4. He says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away. In the same way that the pastor has loved his wife, he has healed her backsliding. He's accepted her. And he brings her back and again adopts her. Um, but the problem is when you love someone freely like this, there's something that happens to the other person. And that is often the person who is creating the hurt, one, once they realize the hurt and the pain they've caused the other partner, it causes guilt and shame. You know what I mean? And one thing that happens when you're feeling guilt and shame is that you sense the pain that you've caused the people in your life your spouse, your children, your family, especially in this story, that you feel you need to be punished. Okay? And being part of a Christian community, one thing that we have sometimes um, uh, programmed is that we feel, whether it's right or wrong, is that if we sin, we feel sin needs to be punished somehow. And one form of punishment is to do the sin again. 
Why? Because when we do the sin again, we feel bad about ourselves. And making ourselves feel worse and bad about ourselves is a convenient form of self-punishment. So often people who have sinned or who have struggled with something maybe have forgiven, have been forgiven or forgiven themselves, then later have felt the shame of what they've done can sometimes backslide and go back to it because of that. And in a way, they're punishing themselves over and over and over again. And it's a misunderstanding of the gospel. But somehow, especially in Christianity, we tend to, it tends to be part of us a little bit more than, than it should be. It's just part of the culture sometimes. And this is what happened to her. She felt the acceptance. She felt the love. The church accepted her, but she saw the damage that was caused. And she went back and she did it again. And she was back on the streets. And it was because of self-punishment. She just felt shame. Unfortunately, things were not, didn't go uh, better to better, but better to worse. And she got pregnant again. And a few years later, same thing happened, and she got pregnant again. And so his children, all of them, were not his. They were all the kids that were from other men and from her harlotry, if you like to call it that. But guess what he does? He accepts her, he forgives her, he embraces her, and he brings her back. Who's the pastor I'm talking about? Well, yes, Jesus can be the example here. Do you know who the pastor is? Pastor Hosea. I'm using a little bit of an allegory trick. I wanted to bring the story of Hosea to a modern setting. I wanted you to see the power of, of acceptance and forgiveness and love. And imagine if that was the pastor that was here. And who does Hosea represent in the story? You mentioned it. Jesus. Jesus was the one that went after his church, Israel. He's the one that saved her from the harlotry of Egypt and from the brokenness and the damage and all the things that they were doing there, the, the, the idol worship. He's the one that saved, saved Israel from that. He's the one that loved Israel continually through the history of Israel, even though they continued, the history was this, up and down. But he loved her back, loved her back, brought her back. It's a beautiful story of the love of God. And you know the story of Hosea, and, and Goma, that she ends up in the sex slave industry because she's so broken and so filled with shame. She goes off to some country she's sold as a slave and Hosea doesn't see her. And uh, coming back to the movie, that Sound of Freedom, the Sound of Freedom, oh, who's seen it, by the way? Oh, wow, good. You know, at the end it says that there are more slaves today than any time in history. That's nuts. That's nuts. And just like what Jesus did for us, Hosea goes, he finds out where she lives, where she's working in another country. He negotiates a price. He realizes the price is going to be everything he has. He's going to have to sell his house, everything. Collects the money, goes to the country, negotiates. And when he buys her back, 
with everything he has, what does he pick up? Someone who is broken, someone who is broken internally, externally, rags, filthy rags, a broken person. In the same way that when God took Israel out of Egypt, he took something that was broken, something filthy. A completely, perspective was completely shot. And we saw that within six weeks, they're dancing around a golden calf naked. That's how broken they were, you know. And yet God continued to love and accept this, this broken this broken thing that is us. And I love that story, how he, I can just, I'm just picturing how Hosea, when he saw her and the brokenness, you know, there in the, where they were negotiating the price, and then she sees him and she realizes that's her husband. And there he is again, saving her. And I don't know whether she would expect him to be angry or whether she expected him to reprimand her or to beat her. I guess in that culture, that would probably be the case. But he would have embraced her just as she was in her filthy rags and kissed her and loved her and picked her up and took her home. And it's that kind of love and that kind of acceptance and compassion that breaks a person. And once you're broken like that, you're never the same again. And she wasn't the same again. And we know from the story that she was a faithful wife. And, yeah, everything changed after that. And I just, just love that. I'm sure she would have never expected that. I'm sure in the same way that when the angel saw Jesus come to earth and eventually die on the cross, I'm sure the angels never expected that in the same way. What are you doing? You're our creator. You're our God. They would have never expected that as well. It's the act of love and forgiveness and acceptance. It's these things. It's the only thing that can lift the curse. That's it. There is nothing else. I remember as a kid growing up, I was thinking, what is the most powerful thing in the universe? And I'm thinking atom bomb, a hydrogen bomb, you know. And I thought, but hey, on the sun, that's powerful. If you drop a bomb on the sun, you won't even see it. It's like a little pimple. And I thought, but there's bigger suns. There's the red giants. You know, they're massive. And I thought, okay, well, what about galaxies? You know, millions of suns. And I'm going through this, and then later I realized, what is the most powerful thing that can create change, that can create – what is the most powerful thing that God can't have control over? And that's us. He can't force us to love him. And it ends up that love is the most powerful force in the universe. I mean, of course, you guys know this. But as a young man, for me, that was a real aha moment, that love is the most powerful force in the universe. And that's why I love that the stories like this. Ezekiel 16, 53. Yet I'll remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. This is thinking of Exodus. This is Exodus language. Verse 63. Then, when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. I've got a note here. Israel's departure from God, coming back to Gomer and the story of Israel. Israel's departure from God had come because they had failed to remember who they were in relationship to him. But as a result of his atoning work, they would remember and return in humility and gratitude. The grace of God always is available to those who repent. 
God will remove the guilt of sin and will heal, forgive, and save not just people, not just churches, not just individuals, but God will also save nations. And when I'm thinking about this story of Hosea and his wife, and then I try, I'm thinking about a story in the New Testament, what story comes up? What do you think of? That's a good, sort of a similar story in the New Testament. Can you think of anything? Someone who was broken, someone who had, someone who needed to be saved, someone who was embraced in their filth. Prodigal son. I love that story. And why I love it is because there's one, there's one scene where the prodigal son has decided to come back home. And he's covered in the, you know, the pig mud and the poo and because he was working with the pigs, right? And he's got no shoes. And he's probably got rags because they, they didn't care. Hair all matted, you know. So he smells. It's a horrible sight. It's gaunt, okay? He's just walking up the road. And I can just see the house up on the hill and the father always waiting for his son to come home. And then the father sees his son. Now the son is like shuffling with his bare feet in the, in the dust hoping to be accepted as a servant. He just wants to be as a servant, treated just like that. So he doesn't even realize it, but as he's shuffling his feet, coming up the hill, guess who's running down the hill? His dad. He doesn't even know that his dad has already seen him and is running to him, and his father loves him. And when he turns, he looks, because he can hear his father running. I don't know what you'd think as a son, but I'm thinking, is he running to slap me one? You know? <laughs> but no, it's like the story of Hosea and Goma. The father embraces him in his filth and loves him and kisses him. And the son hasn't said a word. The father has loved him first. Oh, what beautiful stories, story after story in the Bible. And this, I think, why it's so important, this, these stories of mercy and forgiveness and hope and restoration, this is the Christian story. This is why we're Christians. This is why I feel part of your community, because that's our story. It's who we are. I love that. The secular world can't understand this, and that's why we must do what we can to share this story with them, our experiences. Love has the power to transform lives. Let me read something from Hosea, since we're talking about Hosea. This is the preacher speaking, right? Pastor Hosea. And I'm going to read it from the message because I think it's just so unique, the way the message puts this. Hosea 2.14 says, And now here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to start all over again. I'm taking her back out into the wilderness. Which wilderness is he referring to? God is talking about Sinai. I'm going to take her back into Sinai because it's... You've got to think, there's, there's many stories, there's many pictures here. I'm taking her back into the wilderness where we had our first date and I'll court her. I'll give her bouquet of roses. I'll turn Heartbreak Valley into acres of hope. She'll respond as she did as a young girl those days when she was fresh out of Egypt. Isn't that beautiful language? I love that. I'm just going to finish up here. When I was preparing this, one of the things I was thinking of was Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Do you know what's in Ephesians chapter 5? Oh, yeah, they talk about marriage. And I thought about that text 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I'm reading this, this story of Hosea in Israel and how God accepted her and loved her and brought her back. And Hosea went back time and time after her whoring and the child that wasn't his. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wow. Wow. What we can see here is that God is... Uh, you know what I'm going to do, actually, before I go? Let me read this in the message. I've got it here in the message. As Ephesians 5.25. I found this the other day. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is our husbands ought to love their wives. I'm in trouble. <laughs> oh, Lord, I need your strength. What I love about this is that God is so committed to us, even though we may not always be. He will do everything to accept us, even though sometimes we might reject him. He is relentless in his legal commitment to marriage, even though we have failed. He is relentless in his love and forgiveness, even if we have committed adultery. There's a, a text in Ezekiel 36.26. I'm just paraphrasing a note that I've got here. One of the most remarkable promises of Scripture is that God will take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36.26, if you're making notes. And that is the hardness and the coldness that, that you've developed as a survival mechanism through life. Sometimes we've had to do that to survive. And the pain and the shame that some of us have had to deal with because of maybe the baggage we've had from our youth. And he wants to replace that with a heart that is soft, that is warm, that will feel again, that will love again, that will have compassion again. You know, some of us really are struggling with those sorts of pain. And we don't relate. So what kind of a place should church be? Yeah. After doing, doing this message, I, I really thought about this. And I thought, you know what? Church should be a place where we can learn to love and learn to love safely. Because it's not always safe to learn to love in the world because of betrayal and things like that. But here, we can learn to love. And if we can't learn to love here, oh, well, we're in trouble. But I think church can also be, and probably for me, a primary um, aspect of church is to learn to love, like a school of love. And if we can learn to love here, then maybe we can learn to love and be good neighbors to our other Christian friends. You know, and not all Christian friends are easy to love. All right? I'll give you an example. As I said, half my family is Catholic. All right? And have you been to a Catholic church recently? All right. Okay. So I hadn't been for a long time. So I decided to, I was walking past up in Berwick, and um, they had uh, Easter. You know, they had like three or four services. And I thought, oh, I haven't been to a Catholic church for ages. I'll poke my head in. 
And so I stood at the back and I'm watching the ceremony and it's all, you know, it's, it's like something from the Middle Ages. You know what I'm talking about. It's almost like they had the incense going and, you know, where they say something and then you say something and the priest says something and what's it called? The, the liturgy. And it's just so all robotic, you know. And then they go up to, to get the bread, you know, the little thing to have their communion. I'm thinking, wow, we as Protestants are so blessed. Our churches are so rich. The music, we share, we laugh, we cry, we pray together. This is just so robotic. Wow, you know, I thought, wow, we are so blessed. And then as I'm watching people go up and take the communion and they're coming back around to sit, I'm looking and some of the people, tears down their eyes. I'm like, huh? What? (laughs) And then another person tears down their eyes like what's going on here i'm feeling more like i'm in a pagan ceremony and yet these are people that have been touched by the story of the cross the resurrection you know the, the communion the last supper and the whole thing and i'm thinking when was the last time i cried at a communion yeah and that really i had to remind myself okay god is working here and sometimes uh, it's hard to love other groups, you know, Hindus, Muslims. Sometimes it's hard to love the, the homeless, you know, especially when they smell, the atheists, when they give us a hard time. Yeah, there are groups in the world that are really hard to love. But these are all our neighbours. And if love can't break the barriers, and if love can't, embrace them and bring them here and make them feel at home like you've made me feel at home you know this weirdo this Adventist weirdo and thank you for adopting me as your um like a a prodigal son maybe (laughs) foster son yeah a church should be a place where we can love learn to love grow our love practice our love especially when people come into the church that are hard to love maybe even our neighbors Let me finish here. God shines his goodness on all, the just and the unjust. His spirit is poured out on all the diverse groups of people and religions and nations and tribes of the world. And I pray that our church communities will be a place that will be a place of acceptance, of mercy, of forgiveness, of love, in the same way that God has continually shown throughout history no matter what group of people they are. So I hope this church will continue to develop that. And I have confidence that this is the place because I feel very welcome here. So, yeah, thank you. That's what I wanted to share with you guys this morning. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or feedback, please email us at hello at hoperevolution.church. 